Welcome everyone to the latest episode of In A Nutshell. Our host Nick Keith is joined today by Nikunj Mehta, CEO and co-founder of Falconry, Operational AI Specialists. Today's episode is all about predictive digital twins. Nick and Nikunj will discuss some practical applications of digital twinning that we're seeing in the current landscape, how digital twinning can help us see things more clearly, and lastly, how organisations go about evaluating whether a digital twin is the right approach for them. Nikunj will also share his thoughts on whether AI has the ability to replace people. Super excited to have you here and hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, welcome to another uh, In A Nutshell podcast from Avaya. Um, really, really pleased to be joined today by Nikunj Mehta. He's the founder and CEO of Falconry, who are um, operational AI specialists. And we're going to talk about all things AI and uh, with a particular focus on digital twinning today. So digital twinning, this is pretty, it's been a concept that's been around for a while, but only fairly recently is it becoming reality. Kind of sort of practical applications are, uh, are we seeing out there right now? I think digital twins have to be seen almost as if, um, uh, you know, it's a Netflix subscription. Someday you want to watch a rom-com and someday you want to watch a war movie. And digital twins are like that. Someday you have to train some people who are joining your company. Someday you have to do your Gemba walk or uh, your, uh, uh, you know, you're checking out the routes that you regularly take. And at other times you're trying to troubleshoot a problem and therefore need to try and understand what caused it and how to fix it. So digital twins do come in many different flavors. And as you say, you know, over the course of, uh, I'd say the last about 40 years or so, ever since the Apollo 13 uh, sort of exploded, there has been a lot of interest in twins, mostly because people are trying to understand how can I get a replica of the physical system that I own or operate uh, so that when I need to understand that physical system without having to take it apart, how can I understand it better? Um, so yes, digital twins do come in um, many flavors, and especially because um, it's a new perspective, a new, if you might, set of glasses. It can help us see things a little more clearly, perhaps a little better. And that's another way in which a lot of people are yeah. thinking about digital twins. Yeah, so I know recently um, Satya Nadelia um, described the benefits of, of digital twinning as it's one of the biggest trends in um, in technology right now. That's direct from Microsoft's chief executive. Presumably, that's um, that's that's something you'd, you'd agree with, or would you even put it uh, higher up than that? <laughs> no, I think uh, Satya Nadella has been uh, quite consistent in his uh, optimism for digital twins. Um, and I have sometimes tried to compare the advent of digital twins to what happened in the internet. Um, and if you recall, when Google Maps originally started out, we weren't quite sure whether it was a one-of-a-kind thing or not. Uh, but it, it was the beginning of Web 2.0. And the internet has not been the same after that. I think digital twins are somewhat the same type of phenomenon. And I do think that because of the open canvas or the, the blank canvas that it presents to people about what they want in it, um, there is a lot of uh, pent up demand to understand the world better in the manufacturing world um, that digital twins will be able to fulfill. 
And so I do share his enthusiasm. Uh, these are not just yet another like Google Glasses, right? This is a virtual environment and it is one that is meant to be enriched with perspectives over time. The reason why I feel excited also about digital twins is that from the very beginning, digital twins have been made to uh, look at real world operation and not simply be about simulation. And so as a result, uh, there is this new vast um, uh, sort of amount of sensor data or operational data, as we call it, that requires a place to go in terms of human cognition. And digital twins consider that that operational data or whatever is derived from it is central to digital twins. And that's the other reason why I'm very optimistic about digital twins, that this new type of data does need a new type of perspective. and. Uh, I've seen some wonderful examples of digital twins uh, that go beyond the ordinary. And then I've seen some examples of digital twins that are relatively um, you know, ordinary, but it is applied in a world that is so low tech that to get even that far in the current time frame uh, is itself a big surprise for us. Uh, so to me, I think digital twins are being welcomed in the manufacturing world. And as uh, manufacturers are known for, they are very discerning about what it is and what value it creates and not look at it merely as another, uh, you know, fashionable thing to carry in their uh, in their plants and factories. Yeah, yeah, no, it's certainly an exciting time. I mean, one one of the things that I was um, I was wondering, it'd be great to get your view on. Do, do you see um, the kind of whole machine learning piece um, and the uh, kind of smart factory um, taking a lead in this in terms of everything having a sensor and everything providing data first and then taking that and using it to create digital twins or or do you do you see the digital twin kind of taking a lead and and requiring that kind of data and information coming off of the shop floor which requires that kind of if you like retrofitting of the capability to to sense and respond mm-hmm well, I see this more from the perspective of why are people putting in either operational AI or digital twins or instrumentation and sensors, right? So my perception of this is that there is a gap between what we know and what we want to know. I call it the cognition gap. And that gap is why we are trying to put in all this new technology, whether it is instrumentation, visualization, or analysis and AI. And I think that the manufacturers who approach it from the perspective of what is that gap and how do I best fill that gap are likely to be more successful in the long term. Now, some people have access to more cash and capital and others have access to less. And some people have a history of executing capital projects really well, very efficiently in a timely manner and delivering the benefits that they said they would. And others, are not as meticulous at the planning, but they're extremely good at improving. So I think that there are going to be different ways in which people will approach it and succeed. But I do think that more data is a secular trend. And more data also means more AI because there is no human possible way to understand that data. A digital twin is actually providing the context in which to interpret all those results from AI. 
And because in a shop floor, you have to be able to uh, build the awareness of what all lies around, how it is connected when you look at an insight or a recommendation so that the human uh, element of knowledge and of experience is brought to bear. And that is where digital twins will serve to provide that context. So I see that as basically three layers and they are not necessarily in linear uh, way of approaching it. There is, um, if you might, a cyclical process in terms of improvement and investments will gradually arise as those gaps start to get filled in. So I think I think what I'm hearing is that, the, you know, the large corporates, those with the deep pockets have been able to kind of fund a, almost a ground up approach because they can afford to. But as we're moving forward, um, the approaches will become more standardized and and, uh, and and certainly the the packaged kind of service package methods approach will be um, will give accessibility to uh, and make this much more affordable, lower the barriers to entry for people that perhaps don't have quite such deep pockets. What's what's your thoughts on that? Right. So I do think that the digital twins have been the realm of, um, for example, space agencies because they deal with distances and delays and also the Fortune 500 companies because they are always trying to find out how they can compete with some of the most accomplished people and the most uh, well-equipped companies. Uh, but that's not where the revolution is going to happen. It's going to happen in the mid-sized companies and eventually in the small manufacturers, just like we've seen how Airbnb has taken on, say, Hilton. Um, so if that is, in fact, applicable in the manufacturing world, and that's a hypothesis, then we have to understand what would be needed to succeed with digital twins at a larger and wider scale. And that requires that these capabilities are more packaged and involve less system integration. In fact, there has been quite some discussion lately about how system integration has become about mostly a, combin a combining of technologies and not about solving value problems, and that becomes a very big albatross around the neck of those who are spending money. And currently, digital twins do require a fair amount of system integration. But I don't think that that is how medium in, uh, manufacturers, producers, or other industrial organizations will be able to succeed with digital twins and with Industry 4.0, broadly speaking. So my perspective is that packaged capabilities are you know, I have been around for a while in all the other areas. Just look at Salesforce as an example. They yeah. started out in the small and medium segment and it was a packaged application and it served 95% of the needs of those companies. And the remaining 5% is where an ecosystem of other application providers sprung up. And now Salesforce shares the stage with them and has been able to scale up to an even larger group of organizations. I think something similar will happen even in the digital twins space. Yeah. So, so that being said, and and that accessibility now is really starting to appeal to the uh, the kind of upper end of the uh, the the SME uh, customer base. Um, how do those organisations go about evaluating um, whether whether digital twin is is a right 
is the right approach for them? I mean, what, what should they kind of be looking for? What kind of things should they be looking to do uh, where digital twin, where a digital twin perhaps might solve a particularly complex issue um, without having to make wholesale changes to the to the organization? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times digital twins are um, interpreted as being an immersive three-dimensional kind of an augmented reality environment. <clears throat> And we forget that for the longest of time, we have lived in a two-dimensional world when it comes to designs and diagrams and understanding the context in which a plant is located. Now, of course, you can walk through the plant, that's your 3D. And you can look at the piping and instrumentation diagram of the plant, and that's 2D. Now, we seem to get along just fine for the most part. Um, a lot of simulation and a lot of visualization tends to be richer than that. That's not going to be for everybody. So when organizations are beginning to think about digital twins, I do think that they can follow their instinct and say, do I really need that? When I get that, I want in operational and real-time mathematical, if you might, understanding of what's happening in my plan. But it, that is not literally what I need to buy. <laughs> so what do I buy? I buy a anticipatory um, sort of insight on what is going to happen in my plant. And then I like to see that in the context of everything that happens in my plant, because what I'm anticipating may happen is going to happen infrequently enough that that itself cannot create enough value. So I need to also be able to see what's happening all the time. And as it is, uh, my previous systems like an HMI or a human machine interface that runs inside the control room of my plant or uh, the computer-aided design of my plant. These are relatively old views. What can I do with them has always been the question for many people. So you would start from what can I do that tells me something about what's going on in context of views that I'm used to understanding, schematics as well as uh, the piping and instrumentation diagrams. These are some common examples. Then the next thing you try to understand is well, I understand that I cannot possibly capture data of everything. It's just impossible. But is there a way I can leverage the physics designs I have created or that I have inherited with the AI that I can do on data? And that way you are leveraging assets, basically your brownfield assets, along with the new greenfield stuff. And that is important because no matter how hard we try, data is analyzed primarily for correlations. And correlation does not equal causation. And all of the physics that was required to design and now operate the plant is not going to be imitated by data and correlations overnight. It takes a little bit of time to gain that kind of perspective. So you do want to incorporate that. And then the third and probably one of the most important piece it is the human capital that we have created through operating the plant for decades. How do we capture, or at least start to capture that knowledge and engage those experts into these digital twins? And that last element is important because in, other way, in many ways, humans are the knowledge of the last resort. And when everything else fails, we rely on people's experience and expertise. And therefore, we need to be able to understand how can that play a role in these digital twins 
And is there a way that digital twins start to incorporate the knowledge of those experts so that we are able to more readily procure or rather more readily dish out their knowledge in the right context? So these are the three elements, if you might, the strategic elements that business owners should think about when they plan their own digital twin strategy. Yeah, it makes me think back to, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 years ago when I was doing a lot of work um, in the in the BI field and we were talking about, um, you know, understanding what's happened in your business, um, then kind of understanding, um, you know, going on this journey where we you know what's happened. We now start to look at what is happening and get a handle on what is happening. And then we're all the way up to starting to see what's going to happen in the future. And then ultimately um, predicting and influencing the future. And it kind of feels almost the same where digital twinning can, can play a key role in that sort of influencing the future. What decisions do I need to make? to to drive my business forward without actually physically having to make them in the real world. Yeah, and actually I would say that while I don't want to um, compare the value of these two worlds, but if you look at the world of trading, you know, it started from hand couriered notes sent across perhaps a distant uh, road uh, to the other side of the country um, and, and sort of money exchanged hands and goods exchanged hands. And then we went into the pit uh, trading uh, in the presence of hundreds of other traders. And now we are doing trading by the microsecond. So you can see how uh, the recognition that that time is precious and we can do more and anticipating what is going to come and taking advantage of that uh, advanced knowledge is, in, is a competitive advantage. I think similar things will happen in the manufacturing world as well, where we might have been looking at a whiteboard of production levels on a daily or a shift basis. And we realize that it is a little late by the time we understand that there is a problem. And we want to know that much sooner and we want to know with that much more precision why what is happening is happening. And so there is that incessant need to know sooner and to know finer grained information that we can act on. And I think that that is the right intuition, but of course manufacturers want to do that without breaking anything. And I think the real challenge for manufacturers is not whether digital twins are real and whether this industry 4.0 is going to create impact. It is how do I adopt it without breaking the bank and without ruining my current operation? And that is, I think, the real challenge facing many of these business owners and decision makers in the mid-market because they only have limited staff and they want to be able to do better and do it in a relatively risk-averse way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And just just to pick up on another point that you made there. So ultimately, you talked about um, having to perhaps fall back on on human experience and knowledge um, to to, you know, to complete the picture, if you like. And I know that's that's a concern to some to some people, um, certainly around things like security and privacy and you know, surveillance, big brother and, and the whole ethical question of, uh, of, of of digital twins and AI and how they how they will kind of influence and operate in the real world and and I guess if ultimately we always have to um, you know fall back on on some kind of human intervention because we need that we value that experience and knowledge um, 
that that is a this is a genuine concern to some people what what uh, what's your take on that yeah i think um, every manufacturing environment that i've uh, visited and every manufacturing company that i work with the one takeaway i always get is that they highly highly respect the people they have they have been there for a long time they have been the shoulders on which the company stands. And that's not about to change. There's no rush in changing that. At the same time, there is a desire to become, uh, if you might, more precise and more responsive. And as people look to achieve those goals, they realize that the role of people in that is also going to evolve. And at least my sense is that both manufacturers in particular are keen to understand what is that balance between human knowledge and oversight and machine work and learning going to be. That relationship is very, very important to understand for them. Now, the ethical <clears throat> implication of uh, this relationship, first and foremost, is are we assuming that humans do not contribute value? And are we building on that premise or are we saying that human knowledge is the last resort and the best we can do is to capture tiny bits of that tacit knowledge over time? So between these two extremes, I guess I'm, I'm not saying these are two extremes, between the extreme that human uh, uh, knowledge or human ability is only incidental to manufacturing work versus human knowledge is the last resort is where people have to decide where they fall. It's not going to be the same for everyone. And then manufacturers, I find many of them to be closer to, yeah, tacit knowledge. My people know a lot, but I don't have a way of getting them to enumerate everything they know. And I don't have the means of recording everything they know and using it later. So how do we deal with that? So the ethics is really going to be about less surveillance and more is a human being both in control of that AI, but also is able to collaborate with that AI. To the extent that that is possible, I believe we will be able to see um, sort of an improvement in the manufacturing practice. And here's one thing to keep in mind. The robots have replaced people. A lot of assembly work and a lot of picking and placing is now done by robots. On the other hand, AI by itself is not doing work. It is telling you what it sees in ways that we may not be able to see it. But at the end of the day, it is humans who are making decisions. And even when some of that decision-making might be uh, automated or at least set up and then approved by a human being, it is not the same as doing the work. And therefore, I think it is less about surveilling people who are doing the work especially when it comes to digital twins and operational AI, as it is about augmenting the abilities of people and experts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a danger in seeing this for sort of a, from the perspective, I would call it the kind of Tesla perspective where, you know, you see an automated vehicle driving itself and making decisions about who lives or dies if they've got to, uh, if they've got to take some avoiding action, and I think um, it would be it'd be very unfortunate if that gets 
sort of um, you know generalized across all of the use cases, most of which are extremely um, practical, viable, and 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 have a huge amount of uh, a huge amount of value to a particular organization. That's right, and I think um, everybody has recognized that when it comes to physical systems uh, that have not been performed by machines alone, uh, that oversight is an important role. And even with uh, you know Tesla's autopilot, you are still required to be in the driver's seat, and you are still required to respond when you are told that you need to drive and not ask the machine to do so. And I think that that is a reminder to us all that while it might make us more productive and perhaps provide us an experience that is less tiring, uh, at the end of the day, we cannot be missing in the on the job. And that's that's where I would leave it. I think concerns are valid as a society. We need to be thinking about it, and especially manufacturers need to envision what kind of a world do they want to be in? What is the role of people in it? and not worry about AI. I don't think that AI has the ability to replace people. It's a lot of times uh, what we imagine AI can do, which I don't think AI is able to do anytime in the near future. The manufacturing world is quite complex, and the best we can hope for is that it can augment people in ways that people are unable to do things by themselves. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and it's a subject I think they'll run and run and there will be um, potentially a new kind of movement around um, rules, protocols, laws governing all of uh, uh, covering all of this uh, technology as it as it becomes more prevalent. But but I'm keen to lighten the uh, mood a little bit and um, um, I'm going to ask you shortly to to just share a good customer story good customer experience that you've had, a real world experience. But, but before I do that, I just wanted to um, draw a nice little segue into the world of Salesforce because um, Salesforce has um, made some moves into digital twinning in the past. And I've seen some great showcases around things like uh, um, wind farms and how digital twinning can help to, to solve problems with wind farms that are particularly inaccessible. Um, but but um, I've recently found out that Salesforce Tower itself in London, they're creating a complete digital twin of Salesforce Tower um, so that they can optimize it and uh, move towards making it uh, net zero carbon over the next few years. And also because there's a lot of real estate available now in, in London, it's become very competitive. They're trying to optimize the way that the, the entire building operates so that they can model uh, requirements for individual tenants very, very accurately. Um, and optimize that whole experience that customers have in the tower and make it as efficient as possible. And that way kind of stop that co competition that's bringing up uh, as a couple of new buildings gone up just along the road from, from Salesforce Tower. So quite a, quite a good and interesting use of, uh, uh, of digital twinning, which is taking place as, as we speak. What about um, your experiences, Nick? Talk to me about a yeah. really good, perhaps your favorite um, digital twin that you've been involved with? Yeah, I guess it's not in the medium enterprise, so I apologize for taking this example, but it is my favorite. Um, and so that example is a, uh, is a ship that uh, operates on an advanced drive technology that is powered by turbines. <clears throat> and 
uh, this particular ship uh, needs to be able to operate without loss of power. It may lose propulsion if it runs out of fuel naturally, but it should not run out of power. And um, uh, you know, you saw the example of the Ever Given where it is said that it had a loss of power in the middle of Suez Canal. And after that, winds knocked it out of its uh, orientation. Uh, loss of power can be very dangerous, especially when it happens in places like canals. Um, and so one of the ships that uh, uh, we, have, we have worked with now that we are, uh, or rather we are now expanding from that ship to the fleet of those ships uh, is an interesting area where I saw this concept of twinning being taken to a new level. And there the idea was that we wanted to understand the flow of power through that ship as that flow was altered in a um, uh, in, in, in a sort of a, a course correcting, or I guess not course correcting, but a maneuvering and uh, uh, dealing with the exigencies that that ship has to deal with. Um, and at first I thought, you know, this is a fairly complex and unpredictable environment. Then the second thing I realized was that the whole system of power distribution in that ship had multiple paths for power to be delivered from one point to another. And so how do you twin something that is this complex? And it turned out that the answer was actually quite uh, simple in its principle. Uh, and that there are two principles. One, <clears throat> can we understand the trends of data that were arising? And two, can we apply the structure of that system against the trends in data to understand what's happening in that power plant? And so that ship basically created a digital twin where from a few thousand sensors that are dedicated just to understanding the power flow and uh, distribution, uh, they were able to create a digital twin that explained to them at the level of the ship, at the level of a subsystem in that ship, at the level of a individual relay or switch or auxiliary turbine, um, what was going on and then understand why it was happening, which was sourced from the sensors that were able to provide data into this digital twin. And I thought it was amazing because those kinds of activities would ordinarily take, you know, I would say tens of man years of effort, uh, something like 20, 30, 40 man years of effort to get to that point. And they were able to do that within a few man months, like three to five man months. And to me, that kind of uh, uh, sort of acceleration is uh, probably what is needed to make this type of an approach of course, in less scaled environments, as well as in simpler environments, accessible to more organizations. And then I, on the other hand, saw a bakery that also wanted to have digital twins of its ovens and its conveying lines and its mixers. And they did not want to spend a lot of money on the sensors that they'd have to replace the batteries for every now and then. Uh, and the radio required for all of that data to be moving around without new wiring to be laid out and so on. And so I saw in their example, basically high school dropouts operating the plant and digital twins being put in their hands, knowing what is the state of the conveying line and the mixers and those ovens with very simple sensors that were simply keeping an eye on is there more vibration and what's the temperature. And by combining those data and their trends, they now can see when or they can anticipate when trouble is coming. 
and they can take evasive action, which means that they will save a lot of lost production. So you look at these two extremes, the ship company is extremely wealthy and can spend money to solve any problem. And this bakery does not want to throw away money, they're profitable, but they are very disciplined and they want to solve the problem that absolutely needs to be solved and only add to it once they have the confidence that that is well solved. So I look at both these extremes and the same approach works for both. To me, that is particularly exciting. And we are calling them uh, predictive digital twins uh, because you know a lot of digital twins are often understood to be simulations and three-dimensional virtualizations, but not necessarily a place where prediction happens. Yeah, and that and that's where you know that's where the real value can 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 be unlocked without a doubt. Um, and this, this is a fascinating fascinating uh, topic subject, and I'm I'm sure that we'll get chance to to talk a little bit more about this. But uh, unfortunately, we're we're running out of time today. But that's been tremendously interesting, and I I really think that it's becoming accessible to more and more people so it should be on people's agenda now to at least consider whether digital twinning um can actually um you know play a part in the organization and and, and solve a real world um use case which perhaps without a digital twin would be virtually impossible to to solve so thank you so much nikunj for uh, for for joining me today and um I hope we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Nick, for having me on this podcast. And uh, I hope that uh, your audience uh, sort of tries to take some personal responsibility to understand uh, these digital twins. And uh, I think that uh, organizations, governments, as well as societies have a major role to play in shaping our uh, uh, sort of uh, manufacturing futures. Um, and I welcome you to subscribe, uh, not just to this podcast, but to places that can share knowledge about how can we cope with this and how can we take advantage of it.